Welcome to High Noon, where we talk about controversial, controversial subjects with interesting people. Andy McCarthy is a senior fellow at National Review Institute. He's uh, an NR contributing editor. He's the author of Ball of Collusion, The Plot to uh, Rig an Election and Destroy a Presidency. He served as an assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York. Um, and, and many of you probably know him from, from his um, podcast as well with uh, Rich Lowry, as well as uh, from the many, many appearances where he he goes on all kinds of places, particularly Fox News, to explain various aspects of law that then intersect with some news story um, or or have burst into the public consciousness uh, in a way. And we need some someone who's who's a brilliant translator uh, for for various legal concepts. Um, but but I really appreciate Andy's work, particularly when he was the only one who could talk me through in any uh, meaningful way and help me to understand the the long saga of Russiagate and um, and how various American uh, you know sort of intelligence agencies uh, what what the rules were between the DOJ and between domestic law enforcement and foreign uh, foreign surveillance or tools that are meant to essentially prosecute America's foreign policy abroad. Uh, so he was invaluable as a voice, I think, through that whole saga when we were trying to understand uh, just what was appropriate, what wasn't appropriate, um, what we could believe, what we couldn't believe, because it seemed like during that whole saga that it was so heavy on detail and background knowledge and also so heavy on the opinion side that at least for me, it was very, very difficult to even tell where people's spin was. So. Um, you know, Andy was invaluable in that in, in providing a service where I knew I could absolutely trust everything that he said. He wasn't going to insert his opinion until he was explicitly asked, asked to, and he was just going to talk us through what was true and what wasn't. Um, and that was, I think, for that whole episode, that was such an invaluable service. So that's always how I remember you, Andy McCarthy. Welcome to High Noon. Oh, uh, well, thanks so much, Inez. That's very, very kind of you. And I, I, I appreciate that more than you know, because a lot of what I think I know about that escapade, which, you know, there's been a lot of new information since I wrote the book about it. Um, but a lot of what I think I know about it was kind of um, based on having been wrong about things that I assumed to be the case at the beginning, and then trying to figure out not only why was I wrong about something that I really thought I knew well, but where did it go off the rails, and what was uh, what was it that um, that caused this to, this thing to happen that I thought could never happen, which was that the Justice Department and the FBI would pretextually use national security powers to conduct a criminal investigation under circumstances where they didn't really have enough evidence to do a criminal investigation. Um, so, if I if I knew. Uh, things in a way that was helpful. It was only because I was wrong about them and had to try to figure out why. Yeah, and that's that's really what I wanted to talk to you about today because you know you have spent um, such a long time in positions where you were either inside institutions like the DOJ um, or you know as as a, a district attorney or um, as a U.S. attorney. Sorry. Um, you know, you've spent so much time inside these institutions and then also helped explain the actions of those institutions to people who don't have that same knowledge. And I really wanted to ask you like kind of a 10,000 level question, 10,000 foot level question, which is, you know, how do you feel about 
the institutions themselves now that you have seen, because a lot of the things throughout that investigation and, and that whole saga, a lot of the things that you initially thought could not happen because these institutions were professional. They were institutions of the law, not of politics. You know, not that everyone knows that individuals have their political opinions, but I think, and correct me if I'm, I'm wrong here, you really believed that the institution itself would carry out its duties in a professional and apolitical manner. Um, and then kind of found out piece by piece that in fact, they didn't carry out those duties in an apolitical manner. Um, I was wondering how you feel about that generally, um, how that makes you think about the future of institutions of justice in this country. Well, I think something important has been lost and it really has been lost over the last 20 years or so. Easy for me to say because that just happens to track with uh, when I left the Justice Department. So it must have been me leaving that that uh, changed everything, I'm sure. But um, actually, the reason I I felt strongly about the about how not only things should be, but how I really think they substantially were, and I don't want to create this into something that it's not. I mean, you know, there's an ideal of how an institution's supposed to act, and there are aberrations. Uh, that happened from time to time. But the thing is, they really were aberrations um, up until the last 15, 20 years um, in the sense that, you know, you were supposed to behave a certain way. Everybody knew you were supposed to behave a certain way and they came down on you like a ton of bricks if you didn't. And I was a conservative lawyer in New York um, I not only worked in the U.S. Attorney's Office for almost 20 years, I, I ran the satellite U.S. Attorney's Office for the last five years that I was there. Almost all of my closest friends were liberal Democrats. It's New York, after all. Uh, and we're talking about people who've been educated at elite law schools. And yet, um, we prosecuted Democrats, we prosecuted Republicans, we had political corruption cases against both sides. We had very, we had people who were very opinionated politically. I'm very opinionated politically. But when you went into a courtroom, that stuff really did get checked at the door. And I've always thought that if you're doing it right, the job is is clinical. It's you you have to know objectively this is what the law is. You figure out what the facts of the case are. You apply one to the other. And if you're doing it right, it shouldn't matter who your prosecutor is any more than it does, you know, your chiropractor or, or you know, uh, somebody who um, is in some other job where you wouldn't expect politics to infect the the professional work. Uh, and I do think that that is how it worked most of the time. In fact, I, I have a distinct memory. I remember um, one of the big controversies when uh, when Clinton left office was the pardons that he did at the last uh, minute, actually, as he was going out the door his last day. And where I had, um, I was then running the satellite U.S. Attorney's Office north of Manhattan and the Bronx, uh, the three counties each on each side of the Hudson River. So because of where we were, we had jurisdiction over the part of the investigation that was looking into whether um, Clinton pardoned uh, people from the Hasidic Jewish community who were involved in this big fraud case for the benefit of Mrs. Clinton, who was planning to run 
for the Senate. And the, the reason I have such a distinct memory of it is very shortly after, uh, after that all happened and once President Bush was in office, uh, we had a big divide in the office about what to do about the case. And the thing was, I thought we should just dismiss it, that there was no case against Hillary Clinton because I thought constitutionally you couldn't prosecute, that if Clinton, if Clinton had abused the pardon power, he was subject to impeachment, but that there was no criminal prosecution on it. And then we had other people who were good friends of mine, experienced prosecutors who were progressive Democrats who think we absolutely could investigate and potentially prosecute Mrs. Clinton over it. So if you only knew what our political attitudes were, you would assume that I was the uh, I was the jihadist for, for uh, going after Hillary Clinton and the other people would have said, oh, you know, we, we uh, agree with her politically, so let's give her a pass. And in point of fact, it was precisely the opposite that was going on. So I, I really and I really do think that the reason people felt the way they felt was because this was what their vision of what the law required was. It had nothing to do with what their political sentiments were. And it wasn't that remarkable because that's the way things were. But now I think it's a much more common thing for the, the tools of, of government and particularly of law enforcement to be politicized so that people are convinced uh, and not convinced because of political reasons, but because of what they see again and again and again, that we have a two-tiered justice system. And that if you are um, perceived as an, an ally or a favored category of the political establishment, you get one quality of justice. And if you're seen as on the other political side, you get a much worse quality of justice. And if that happens enough times over you know, 15 years or so, I think people come away rightly with the idea that the, something is very wrong. And the reason you lose something that's precious is because if we don't have a common perception that the, the results that come out of the criminal justice system are legitimate and even-handed, that completely undermines its credibility. And ultimately, if that goes on for too long, you lose the rule of law. And if you lose the rule of law, you lose any chance of having a flourishing free society. So it's really important. Yeah, I, I completely agree that it's it's poisonous um, for there to be this perception based on, and, and importantly, a perception based on um, you know, real I guess observing real actions of the justice system, not, you know, I think a lot of folks maybe in, in the um, corporate media or in the way that they talk about this, I don't even want to say the left because there are voices on the left that equally mistrust the justice system, which is one of these weird horseshoe um, right. sort of effects, right? Uh, right. What, what of um, one of the first things I've ever read by you was uh, your your book about prosecuting the the blind shake for the 1993 World Trade Center bombings. Um, you know, a decade, just under a decade before 9/11, and you know, there of course it was very much about delineating what's appropriate, what tools are appropriate, um, and what pro tools are really necessary to execute a foreign war in, in a, a sort of asymmetric modern context and how the rule of law at home is not well equipped to do that. Um, 
and and I think you were right, and and I certainly agreed with you at the time that that uh, our our rule of law was not well equipped, and you really you know that better than anybody else because you you basically did the best you could with the tools that our justice system gives us to make sure to bring justice to people who had committed terrorist acts against the United States. But, you know, there, there is, there was this worry at the time from both the left and pieces of the right that these tools that circumvented some of the due process um, requirements that would be, that we take for granted, or at least we don't take for granted maybe anymore. And that's the problem, but um, that we used to take for granted at home in order to, to, deal with this foreign threat there were definitely people at the time who worried you know these these tools can definitely be used domestically if the professionalism and the sort of safeguards in these institutions against using them that way somehow dissolve and i guess yeah. the question i want to ask you is how why do you think that's happened? You said over the last maybe 10 or 15 years, you think that this this has been slowly moving, has been moving from an aberration to just something that is part of the justice system. You know, why do you think that has happened and is continuing to happen now? I think it it has happened because it's human nature and we haven't learned from history. So we didn't think it could happen again. But there's a history of this. Um, you know, in the 19, I, there's a big debate now and there's about, um, whether we should have domestic terrorism acts, right. To, like, uh, pass a bunch of statutes that, uh, uh, that go to domestic terrorism. And that's at a time when, you know, the, the, the regnant political class now wants to, it's not enough to prosecute people who riot at the Capitol, right. You have to now say that they're insurrectionists and they're terrorists because of what motivates them, not just the fact that they may knock down doors and, and you know, destroy some property at the Capitol. And I, I'm not belittling what happened at the Capitol, but what I'm saying is it's been rolled into a political narrative where the, the enemies of the perceived political enemies of the ruling class are now, they have to be terrorists. It's not enough to say that, you know, they've committed crimes uh, and we have to use all of the implements of government against them. So. When did this happen before? Well, it happened in recent history uh, in the 1960s and 1970s into the early 1980s. Uh, and in fact, one of the reasons that the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court was created in 1978 was because the government in the 60s and 70s abused its national security powers and treated people who were political dissenters as if they were all the same as the people who were committing rioting and, and uh, uh, other seditionist violence in the country. And there was a recognition in our law at the time that we have to be very careful with this kind of activity domestically. Foreign terrorist organizations are in a different category because they're not Americans and they're, uh, they're like a foreign element that's trying to destroy our system and undermine it. So it's one thing to, the whole reason that you have a federal government is, is, or a large part of the reason you have a federal government is to protect against that. But when you're dealing with domestic dissent by Americans, the problem you will always have is the dissent, which is protected by the First Amendment, 
is tied up with the with the violent elements. And you have to be very careful that in your exuberance to go after domestic violence, you don't sweep in constitutionally inappropriate penalties on people who are just political dissenters. Uh, and we knew that in the 19, we learned that on the basis of the government's abuses of its authority in the 60s and 70s. And that was the reason why um, not only did they, I, I mean, I, I don't like the FISA court, but I at least, I admire the, the uh, intention behind it, which was to say that we need a check on the government's or the executive branch's likelihood of using this power abusively. And therefore we want them to go through a court first to make sure that they're, they're only using these powers uh, when it's appropriate to use them. Um, there's a lot of reasons structurally why it doesn't work, but at least the impetus behind it was sensible. When we did the Patriot Act after 9-11, almost every clause of the Patriot Act uh, ends with saying that constitutionally protected activity by itself is not enough to trigger the use of this surveillance technique. And all of that was derived from this experience we had in, in the, you know, the late quarter or so of the, the latter half of the 20th century where the powers were abused. And that wasn't the first time that we had the same thing uh, in the World War I era. So there's a long history that shows that um, no matter how much you know that, it, that, it's, um, uh, that it's a bad idea to allow the government to have unrestricted, uh, unreviewable use of national security powers under circumstances where they can turn it against their political foes, human nature teaches us again and again that if that, if that situation obtains, that's exactly what they'll do, right? So you move ahead to, to uh, Russiagate, and the mistake I made in Russiagate was what happened in Russiagate was they used the FISA authorities and other national security authorities against the political opposition of the incumbent party under circumstances where there was no real evidence that Trump and the people around Trump were, you know, Russian stooges or that they were clandestine agents of Russia in the, in the argot of the, um, of the FISA law. Um, so this goes back to the argument that we had, you mentioned the, the, uh, the terrorism years in the, in the nineties, the big argument that we had in the 90s was over something that was called the wall at the time, which is like a, such ancient history now to people that they barely remember it, but it was a big thing in the 1990s. And what happened was the Clinton administration's Justice Department was concerned about a hypothetical possibility which had never occurred before, uh, and there was no evidence that, that it was anywhere close to occurring, that a rogue prosecutor and rogue agents could use the government's national security powers to conduct a criminal investigation by using the pretext of a threat to national security under circumstances where they didn't have enough evidence to do a criminal investigation. And at the time, 
Um, so uh, let me just finish the thought. What they did to prevent this hypothetical thing from happening was prevent the national security investigators, which it was they used to call it foreign counterintelligence, that part of the FBI's house. They were not allowed to share information with the criminal investigators and the prosecutors. And that way you wouldn't get the intelligence side basically steering a criminal investigation when you didn't have any you didn't have enough criminal evidence. And I thought this was crazy. And I wasn't the only one, but uh, we, we were very loud about it. And the reason we're involved at all is because my office in the Southern District of New York was doing the terrorism cases at the time. So what we said is, if you prevent people from communicating with each other, people are going to die. Because what's going to happen is you can't put together the mosaic, as they always put it, of of the intelligence. And the left hand won't know what the right hand is doing. And sure enough, when 9-11 happened, it turned out that the guys who were on the jihadist team that took Flight 77 and crashed it into the Pentagon, they were in the West Coast of the United States for about three weeks before 9-11. The FBI knew they had gotten into the country and the intelligence division asked the criminal division for help and the, to find them. And the criminal division basically said, based on the wall, we can't help you. And then three weeks later, they, they run the plane into the, into the Pentagon, right? Now, does it mean we would have stopped 9-11? Not necessarily, but we, we made it a lot more likely to happen by hamstringing ourselves. And what I was angry about at the time that we were having this discussion or this argument internally was if you assume Let's, let's assume you have a rogue agent. Like, let's just assume you got a bad guy who's an agent or a prosecutor. It would be much easier to fabricate and lie about having the basis to do a criminal investigation and use those authorities, like normal wiretaps and normal criminal justice uh, procedures. It would be much easier to lie about that than to lie about a national security angle, because if you if you want to do FISA, you have to go through a whole different rung of approvals in the Justice Department. So our argument was it would what you're saying not only has never happened before, it would be irrational because it would be it would be harder to pull this off using FISA pretextually than it would be to lie about the, the basis for a criminal investigation. Uh, and I was adamant about that. I really was um, argued it very ardently. So what happens with Trump? They do exactly what I said could not be done, right? They take they they have a pretext of a national security threat. They don't have criminal evidence on him. And what they want to do is sit on him investigatively because they figure he's a bad guy and eventually the evidence will catch up with their predisposition that he's a bad guy, right? If we just sit on him long enough. So if they had done this by criminal justice procedures, the thing with criminal justice procedures is there's a check on bad behavior because everybody, even though I can go to a judge and get a warrant without having to give anybody notice, everybody knows that once the case is indicted, there's going to be discovery and all this stuff is going to be made known to the defense lawyers. And if I've lied to get my surveillance authority, I'm going to be in a lot of trouble and the case is probably going to collapse. Whereas in the national security side, there's no defense lawyers. There's never any discovery. 
The only due process an American ever gets is this discussion between the Justice Department and the FBI on the one hand and the FISA judge on the other hand. And then everything goes into a big a black box and there's never any discovery. So there's obviously a temptation on the part of the Justice Department and the FBI to lie because if they can get it past the judge, they're home free, right? They have as much surveillance authority as they want. So why, why didn't I think it could happen? Because there are these rungs of supervision. The, the attorney general has to sign off on it. The FBI has to sign off on it. There's high level people looking at it. There's the FBI's counsel looking at it. The Justice Department has a division, the National Security Division that looks at it. So there are enough safeguards in place. You would think that you couldn't, you know, if you had a rogue agent, the rogue agent wouldn't be able to get it past all those rungs of supervision. The thing I didn't factor in that I should have factored in was what happens when the supervisors decide to do the case? You know, what happens when it's not a rogue agent? What happens if the top levels of the FBI and the Justice Department decide to, to use their foreign, their national security powers pretextually to do an investigation? If the supervisors run with it, there's no one there to tell them no. So what ended up happening, I think, in Russiagate was the, the people at the top rungs of the Justice Department and the FBI were invested in the idea that Trump was a bad guy and he had some kind of corrupt relationship with Russia. And if they just sat on it long enough, it would the, the evidence would catch up with what they believed. Uh, and the normal things that would stop a low-level agent from doing something like that were ineffective because it was being done at the highest level. So the whole, you know, all your predispositions about what it is that prevents bad behavior were thrown out the window. And if you don't have those safeguards in, human nature takes over. They, were, they did it because they were able to do it. And there was nobody there to tell them no. And that's happened before. And as long as you don't have enough safeguards in place, it'll happen again. You know, what you're you're really talking about there is not, as you say, a rogue agent or even individual human nature, um, because I think the, the foundations of our system are very much set up with the idea that human nature will abuse like power, right? That anybody with a certain amount of power will abuse it. And therefore, as you say, there are plenty of safeguards, checks and balances. There's even in this context, there's the FISA court, which is supposed to provide that check and balance, at least somebody that doesn't have a direct interest in it to provide that counterbalance. I think what is so difficult about, especially in the context of the law, is is really the same thing um, that is happening to our other institutions, which is the institution itself, at the, not just at the highest levels because those individuals are corrupt, but the schools, the law schools that you know all of these folks went to all of their, you know, um, professional contacts, all everybody that works in their world has essentially a set of opinions um, that are no longer traded out. When you were talking about, you know, let's say um, when you were working alongside Democrats, it, it there wasn't yet that uniform, completely uniform um, set of opinions that are frankly at this point shared between Republicans and Democrats who work in the same sort of managerial ruling class. And that's really, I think, what is going on here. It's that 
finally, what has infected every other institution, you know, from the universities and K-12 system all the way to, you know, obviously like Hollywood and all the other agencies, um, where if you look at SEC documents, right, um, or, uh, sorry, FEC documents, you see that 95% of federal donations or donations from federal employees in the 2016 campaign went to Hillary Clinton. That's at that point, everybody you know, and everyone who who has the credentials to work in this justice system largely agrees with each other that as you as you pointed out, Donald Trump is basically a bad guy. And if if we, you know, bend the rules here a little bit, he will eventually feed us what what we know to be true because of the all of these background assumptions. So how how does one rescue the rule of law from what has infected apparently every institution, including the rule of law? But I agree with you that it's more it's more concerning when you're talking about the rule of law and you're talking about the Justice Department than when you're talking about, say, the EPA. Yeah, I see, I think that you can survive a situation where um, the preponderant part of the ruling class is on one political side, as long as everybody agrees and it's it's universally accepted that there's a difference between our disagreements philosophically and when we use the law in a punitive way. So it doesn't matter if, you know, if, if I disagree with somebody and I think the person's a bad person and all that stuff, uh, that's one thing. If, if it becomes a situation where I now think your particular set of attitudes are so off the charts that I should be able to use the law to marginalize it and to punish it, even if there's no active law violation, just because of how you think, that that's that gives me carte blanche to use the law against you. Um, that's a big problem, and I think that the the thing that's gone off the rails here is precisely that. That the people now think, uh, at least people who are in the uh, in the bipartisan progressive ruling class in Washington, it's become a and it's not just in Washington, but it's mainly in Washington. It, it, it's kind of become elementary, even though I don't think they would, uh, maybe that they, they may be at the point where they'd say this out loud now. But um, I, I think it's now become a conceit that if people have the wrong set of attitudes, it's okay to l- use the law, to weaponize the law in a way to marginalize and punish them because you're punishing an attitude that's just off the charts. And for this kind of a system to work, people really do have to believe in free speech and and the free exchange of ideas, even obnoxious ones. And we had a very strong culture up until very recently that um, there was such a thing as the freedom of speech. It's interesting, you know, when people um, look at the First Amendment, they always say, what does freedom mean? And what does speech mean? And actually, the most important word in that clause may be the, um, because it doesn't, the constitution, the first amendment doesn't give you freedom of speech. It gives you the freedom of speech. And the reason I think it's referred to that way is when it was adopted, it was understood that there were certain categories of speech 
that did not get protection. So even though it was called freedom of speech, if you engaged in fighting words or if you engaged in um, uh, you know, uh, immorality, pornography, uh, there, there were like you know, six or seven categories that were well known that you're allowed to regulate. There were time, place and manner restrictions that were well known and you're allowed to regulate. And everybody understood that there were these exceptions from freedom of speech. But other than that, you had in a, a robust freedom of speech in a free society. And the most important of all those possible categories of speech was political speech, that that had to be protected no matter what. Uh, and therefore, no matter how put off you were by, by something someone said or some position they had or some political philosophy that they believed in, um, that, that basically got complete immunity to the point that uh, in the 1950s and, and 60s, the Supreme Court began to draw a distinction between the communist objective to overthrow the United States, including violently overthrow the United States, which was still verboten. And what they called the, basically the academic presentation of the imperative of overthrowing the United States even violently. So they were so concerned about the prospect of criminalizing speech that they drew these fine distinctions even to the, to the benefit of people who wanted to destroy the country because it was that important to protect the exchange of, of uh, political ideas, even obnoxious ones. And we've lost that. Um, so now you have the people who are in power who think that um, their political enemies are not, on, not only wrong, their ideas are dangerous and must be criminalized. And they believe that they are at liberty to use the processes and powers of not only the national security laws, but the criminal laws themselves uh, to carry that mission out. And if that turns, if it turns out that that means that we lose another important uh, rubric or element of our uh, constitutional system that we can't afford to lose, which is equal protection under the law, if that goes by the wayside with free speech, that's okay too. Because this is a this is a battle between good and evil, and the virtuous must must triumph. And what they don't seem to grasp is that the virtuous won't always be in control. You know, <laughs> at some point the other side is going to be in control. And if you've destroyed your procedural and constitutional protections from the the abuse of government power then when the government power is in the hands of the people that you're so worried about, which will eventually happen, you'll have no defense. But that doesn't seem to uh, bother them. Well, I mean, I, I think it, it may not bother them because they've drawn parameters already mentally around who is allowed to be in power. Um, and I think that's what was so, uh, you know, I was no great Donald Trump fan, in, in especially in 2016. But I, I think that was really... Um, a, a bright line for me when we started to see unelected agency bureaucrats and people who are charged with carrying out and executing the law, not with making it, um, 
basically with all the cr- all the cries about democracy, right? Uh, they they really I have I think mentally they've rejected the concept that democracy is allowed to spit out an answer that's outside of their parameters. They have certain sure. parameters, and they're mistaking their shared assumptions, which are really only shared by a particular class class of people. They're mistaking that for liberal democracy itself and therefore are willing to do all kinds of things um, to fundamentally thwart the will of the people in, in a way that really breaks the, the, you know, the contract between voters and their government. Um, but there's this one category, right, which is essentially we can put it in the bucket of, of over prosecution, um, where if you are disfavored in, in um, by the ruling class or by this regime, then uh, you are more likely to to even even to the point of bending or even breaking these very fundamental rules or or um, going around some of the safeguards that are intended to protect uh, people's due process and their liberty. Um, I would also put, for example, the the National School Board Association memo in in this category, trying to apply the term domestic terrorists. Um, either to to rioters in, in the Capitol. And like you, I have no sympathy for anybody, you know, who broke the law and I think they should be prosecuted, but trying to apply that domestic terrorism label so then all these tools are available to them. They're also trying to apply it to parents who are merely participating in the democratic process because they're upset about, about what their children are learning in public schools. But then we have this flip side of the problem, which is the under-prosecution problem because of an ideology that says that um, I really don't think I can improve on Reagan's formulation here, right? Every time there a crime is committed, society must be at fault. Right. Um, and so we have this new crop of DAs uh, in, in Philadelphia, um, in, in San Francisco, now uh, in New York with this Alvin Bragg memo. Now it's called day one memo, I guess. The day one memo where he essentially says, we aren't going to prosecute um, you know, completely apolitical crimes, but, um, you know, up to violent crimes, including uh, mugging somebody, including, uh, you know, serious theft. Um, We're not going to prosecute on the assumption that actually the reason these crimes are taking place is some societal problem, whether it's systemic racism or uh, poverty or, or whatever large scale problem. You know, this also completely erodes people's faith in the rule of law in, in a different way. And what, what I worry about, and I wonder where you think this train is going in terms of, and you have an excellent article in national review that I recommend people read about why it really is an abandonment of their position as executors of the law, as opposed to writing it in the same way that, um, you know, it's inappropriate for bureaucrats to thwart the, the essentially the results of an election. It's inappropriate for officers of the law to, uh, decide that they're rewriting the law essentially to make some of these crimes functionally legal. Um, you know, where do you think that train is going and, and where do you, how do you anticipate that people will respond when they start to realize that in fact, they can't rely on the justice system. Not only can they not rely on the justice system to treat them fairly if they're in the disfavored group, but they can't rely on the justice system to do its fundamental job, which is, you know, to prevent people from from murdering each other and then making sure that justice is served, that when people do injure others or, or steal from their neighbors, that they they are punished by the law and, and not by, like, let's say, the mafia or, 
a gang of neighbors who are angry about it, right? Well, you know, th that stark choice, the, um, <laughs> the bad outcome is the easiest one to describe, right? Because if you do destroy the rule of law, which that kind of uh, prosecutorial power, if, it, if that becomes the way that it's done, it won't be done for very long because you will destroy the, the rule of law. And then you're left with the rule of the, the law of the jungle, um, which is not a free society. It's not a prosperous society. So, you know, I don't mean to be uh, hysterical about this, but if you lose the rule of law, you lose everything. So I, we have to believe, we have to start from the premise that the rule of law will not be lost, but what do we have to do to reclaim it? And the problem with, I think, you know, just to, to, to unfold this a little bit, um, hard progressives are not looking to thrive under the constitution. They want to supplant the constitution and they have a different vision of society. And I think when you try to pin them down about exactly what that vision is, they're not very clear on it. But they are clear on the idea that the society we have has to be, you know, they call it change or whatever, hope, whatever. But they they um, uh, they don't want to live in this system, and they think it's an illegitimate system from its creation. Uh, they have a lot of problems with the Constitution as it's written. Uh, they don't accept the idea of uh, equal justice under the law. Um, so if you start from that premise. Then now let's look at what's happened with progressive prosecutors. This was actually an ingenious scheme by uh, the hard left and particularly the money streams behind the hard left. Everybody always talks about George Soros and he's certainly involved in it, but he's not like, he's like, to me, he's like the big boogeyman. You know, every time something's wrong, we say George Soros. There's a lot more than George Soros going on here. There are, there are big streams of, uh, of funding in the hard left. And what they realized, especially in these blue municipalities where it's one party governance, um, the district attorney is an elective position in most cities and, and uh, counties. And traditionally, these were like five figure campaigns because they're one party things. If you get the party's nomination, that was the end of it, right? You were going to be the district attorney. So what the left realized was if they overwhelm these races with funding, if you take something that's like, you know, 60, 70,000 bucks would be a big campaign number. And then you flood three or $400,000 or more into it. You can get your guy elected as district attorney. They tend to be low turnout elections. Um, and if you spend enough resources on them, you will get your person um, elected. And that was what the scheme was at the beginning. This has been going on for over a decade now. And what the left realized here is it's great to have judges. It's great to have lawmakers. But, you know, lawmakers can only enact law. They can't enforce it. And judges can only deal with the cases that are in front of them and even with respect to those cases, they don't have any power to enforce their injunctions. They can just rule. Whereas executive power in this system is real power because you decide who gets prosecuted and who doesn't. You decide which laws get enforced and which don't. And you become enough of an authority figure if no one stops you that you can mold the laws 
regardless of how they're written, into what you would prefer them to be by the way that you enforce them. So they realize that if you want to really move the society in the direction that you want to go, prosecutorial executive power, but in this context, prosecutorial power is the thing to have. And what ends up happening is under the rubric of prosecutorial discretion, they, which they have completely distorted the meaning of, they have taken to themselves a power to not only decide which laws get enforced, but to manipulate the laws that they do enforce so they're, they're more to their liking. So for, just to be more concrete about it, in a lot of places, the biggest problem, the biggest crime problem in the cities is gangs. Uh, gangs are responsible for most of the, uh, the gun crime that goes on, for most of the drug crime that goes on, for a lot of the extortion and violent crime that goes on. Um, but the left is captured by this idea of disparate impact, this whole theory, which says that if you are arresting and prosecuting people in a, uh, in a manner that, uh, such that the number of them that you are uh, investigating and prosecuting is overrepresentative of, of them as, their, as a matter of their population, their percentage of the population, that the reason that you're doing that must be that you are racially prejudiced. So if, in other words, if black men are prosecuted for 30 or 40% of the crimes, it can't be that they're committing crimes at a higher rate. It must be that you are racist and the police are racist. And you know that's the reason that the, you have this disparity. And we know that's nonsense because crime gets reported. And it's reported by victims, and victims identify who their uh, who the criminals are. So we know on the basis of victim reporting, because not only are we disproportionately, as a matter of population, prosecuting black men, the victims of crime are disproportionately black communities, and they are the ones who are identifying the people who are uh, involved in the crime. So, in other words. We're not prosecuting a high number of a of a particular race because the cops have it in for black guys. So like today, we're going to go out and hunt black guys. That's not how crime gets reported. What happens is a crime gets reported. They tell the police, here's a description of who did it. And then the police go, you know, it's not like the police are out generating the the uh, the statistics. But you can't make that argument. They've, you know, you you talked in as about like things you're now allowed to believe and you're allowed to say, right? This is a fact that you're not allowed to say anymore. That the reason that we have a high number of people from one particular community or one particular demographic that are overrepresented in our prosecutions is because they're offending at a higher level. You're not allowed to say that. So we're supposed to we're supposed to continue on along this fantasy that. Uh, the reason the numbers are what they are is that the system is biased, that we have systemic racism. Because when you ask them, well, give me a particular instance of, you know, what a judge has done or what, what a, you know, a particular precinct has done that's racist, you, what you get is a bunch of hemming and hawing. And that's because, you know, at bottom, I have to laugh at this because I've, I've been a lawyer for so long, you know. The criminal justice system, other than maybe college professors, the criminal justice system and the legal profession 
are the most um, self-avowedly progressive profession among all the professions that we have uh, in America. And the thought that they would run a system, and they do run the criminal justice system, the thought that they would run a system that is systemically racist is about as ridiculous as you can imagine. And those of us who've actually been in the system, what you find actually most of the time is the opposite. What you find is that there's a lot of um, fact pleading that goes on in particular prosecutions, which is specifically designed to make sure that the, that the statute books worst punishments do not come down on the people who commit crimes that would trigger those punishments. Usually it's not like you're going out of your way to get people. It's like you're going out of your way to not get people most of the time. Um, so what happens when these progressive prosecutors get in though is with gang crime, they say, well, the legislature has enacted these gang statutes that when we apply them to the crimes where they're where they factually are relevant, they will increase the sentence of people who are involved to keep them off the streets. We're not going to prosecute those anymore because we think that they have a disparate impact on minorities in our community. So what they do is they go through the statute, they go through the statute books. And they decide we're not going to prosecute these laws that are the laws that have been enacted by the people's representatives because we think that they have a racist impact and therefore they're illegitimate and we're not going to prosecute them. Now, that is not the prosecutor's job. The prosecutor's job, just like a judge's job, is to apply the law as Congress has written it. And even if the prosecutor, there's a lot of, when I was a prosecutor, there's a lot of things I didn't like about federal law enforcement. But the gig is, if Congress passes the law, you have to enforce the law as Congress has passed it. And instead, what they use, they, they say under prosecutorial discretion, they don't have to do that. Now, prosecutorial discretion is nothing more than a common sense resource allocation doctrine that says, basically, there is more crime committed than we have resources to enforce the law. So you have to pick, since you have finite resources and lots of crime, you have to target your criminal resources so the public gets the best bang for its enforcement buck. So for example, when I was a, when I was a federal prosecutor, we didn't do um, marijuana crimes. And the reason we didn't do them is because the district attorney's office did them. In other words, the feds in the state had concurrent jurisdiction over all narcotics crimes, but the best division of labor was to let us, because we could cover international and interstate, let us do the big importation and distribution interstate network cases and let the locals do the, the low level distribution cases and, and particularly marijuana. We weren't saying that marijuana was not a crime, and we weren't, we weren't getting involved in the philosophical question of, you know, should the should the feds be doing, or should should narcotics uh, use be criminalized? Not our job, right? That's for that's for Congress. What we were doing was coming up with an efficient way so that you could target your prosecutorial resources in the places where you, you would get the best enforcement benefit for the public. 
we weren't saying that the crimes that we weren't prosecuting weren't crimes. We weren't using our prosecutorial discretion power to, in effect, repeal congressional statutes so that things that the people's representatives said were criminal, we prosecutors were now deciding were not criminal anymore. And what these progressive prosecutors are doing is that they're not doing what a normal prosecutor does, which is you look at every case individually and you decide based on the offense conduct and the offender whether the case is worth going forward or not. Um, what they're saying is entire categories of crime they're not going to prosecute. And entire um, uh, statutes that Congress has enacted in order to address problems like gang violence, they're not going to prosecute. And they're not saying we can't do it because we're trying to target our resources more efficiently. They're saying we can't do it because these, these crimes, these statutes that the people's representatives have enacted are illegitimate and racist. And that's not prosecutorial discretion. That's just ideology. More precisely, unelected ideological right? decisions. Um, well, well, no, the DAs, the, they the are, state yes, DAs are elected. Not elected right. for this purpose, which, which no, is a, exactly a really right. important distinction you make right. in this column. They're, they're elected, right. but they're elected to enforce the laws that the legislature creates. And so there's an right. important division of power problem there. Um, you, you mentioned that the legal profession as a whole is overwhelmingly progressive. Um, and I would be remiss if I let you go without touching on a case that, um, you know, full disclosure, Ilya Shapiro, I consider him a friend. Um, I think he's a great guy. Uh, but he is now at the center of this controversy, uh, in Georgetown law school, uh, where he was about to begin a post in their constitutional center. Um, and, and it looks like as this, as the case stands right now, uh, on, on recording on Monday, um, the, the Dean has already sent out an email condemning, uh, his tweet, which I'll read in a moment and telling the law school community that it's contrary to the values of, of the law school community. Um, you know, I, I hope it doesn't go this way, but it, it seems unlikely that this won't result uh, in him being fired uh, at some point, or at least an attempt to fire him. The um, the Black Student Union um, within the law school is also calling for his firing. And I'm going to read his tweet now um, in full here, just so we know, since this is about parsing words. Um, Objectively best pick for Biden is Sri Srinivasan, who is a solid, progressive, and very smart Shapiro tweeted, okay, even if his identity politics benefit, even has identity politics benefit of being first Asian Indian American, uh, but alas, doesn't fit into uh, intersectionality hierarchy. So we'll get lesser black woman. Thank heaven for small favors. Um, to me, it's incredibly clear what this actually is saying. It's, and I, I'm actually very frustrated that so many people, um, in the legal world are pretending they don't understand what that tweet is saying. Um, I agree with Ilya himself that it's somewhat inartfully phrased, but he's very clearly saying this one person is by far the best pick. If I were a progressive, I would say this person is the best pick for the Supreme court. Um, he is number one. Unfortunately, we're going to get somebody who's at best ranked number two or below because 
the category black woman has already been advanced by the president. And therefore, he's not considering this other guy who is not a black woman who is the best. Um, it's kind of a simple, logical structure right. of this tweet. One guy's the best, therefore everyone else is lesser. But people got very angry at the three words, lesser black woman, put next to each other and have taken that completely out of context, in my opinion, in a misleading way. But nevertheless, we now have this whole fur on campus um, where where um, Ilya is condemned as a racist and somebody who's unable to teach at Georgetown Law. Um We'll see what the administration does with that, but but do you have any comment on what's this, what this says about whether or not the legal profession and law schools and, and the entire credentialing system for lawyers, I mean, what role, it seems to me this is all connected, right? If, if all, all everybody in the Justice Department comes through a law school in which somebody, a libertarian like Ilya Shapiro cannot teach, um, it seems to me that that has implications about everything that we've talked about for the last hour about how you're going to have certain shared assumptions among everybody who is working in these jobs and is actually, um, you know, implementing the rule of law. So do you have any comment on the specific um, um, episode with Ilya? And then what do you think the fact that Georgetown Law School seems unable to tolerate the views of a very, um, like uh, I, I would call him like uh, aggressively in certain ways, anti-partisan libertarian law professor. What does it say about our legal system that his views are intolerable in one of our best law schools? Yeah, well, it's a catastrophe. Yeah, I agree with your interpretation of Ilya's uh, 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 post. You know, look, he's he's apologized uh, because it was not, as he said, it was not awfully framed. But I don't even think, you know, most of the defense that I have read about Ilya and uh, Dan McLaughlin wrote a great piece for us on, on National Review about this, which I wholeheartedly endorse. But a lot of the defense of Ilya has been, you know, look, look at Ilya's track record. And you can tell that this is not a racist thing. He's making exactly as you described a, a comparative between the best candidate and uh, who, whoever would be the second best candidate. But I don't think it should have been necessary to go to Ilya's record to make that point. I mean, it seemed to me, if you read the whole thing, rather than mine out the the, uh, the clumsy phrasing he, he uh, used in one, of, one part of the post, it's perfectly obvious what he meant. Um, and I also think that if you stacked up what he carefully said in what even he ultimately says was a was clumsy phrasing against some of the stuff that gets put out in academic institutions about originalists, about Clarence Thomas, about, I mean, you name it, right? Um, it's not even in the same category. Um, so, you know, I, I think we're in a, we're in a really sorry state with the universities and it's really, you know, for the reasons that you articulated, it's very important that somebody like Ilya Shapiro teach at a place like Georgetown because otherwise what you're what you're doing is you're minting a whole generation of lawyers in not only a, a particular ideology but in the conviction that the law is ideological that it's that it's basically not 
the undergirding, the rule of law undergirding of a flourishing free society. It is instead a tool or a weapon to be used uh, in an ideological fashion, either to accomplish things you want to accomplish politically or to destroy uh, people who think differently from the way that, that you think. And I, I, what troubles me the most about this, now I'm going to talk about Ilya's career, but I think for the making of this point, it's important. If you look at his career, um, he's a, you know, maybe politically slightly right of center, but he's mainly a libertarian constitutional legal scholar who has very um, mainstream ideas about the idea that, you know, this is what the constitution says and we need to enforce the constitution uh, as it, as it appears, as it was, as it was enacted, that shouldn't be heresy at a law school. (laughs) I mean, you could have a, you could have a situation where, you know, it doesn't offend me that you have some, some progressive scholars on the faculty who say, no, 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 the constitution is organic. We're evolving, just like Justice Kennedy said, we're evolving. We're, we have this concept of liberty. It's ever expanding. And our, our concept of meaning of the universe, of, you know, uh, what did uh, Scalia call it? The, the sweet mystery of life passage in, uh, in Casey. Um, you know, you have, a, you have some people who have a, uh, what, an idea that, about the Constitution that became mainstream in the 20th century, that it's, a, it's an organic document, it's evolving. Um, that it's not like a crazy philosophy in the sense that, like, if you look at the Eighth Amendment jurisprudence, there's an awful lot that we, we uh, would have to say was constitutional in the way of punishment uh, in when the, at the time the Constitution was adopted that we would look at now as, as close to being barbaric, Right. Um, so it's not like the, the progressives are crazy in this idea. People do evolve. They, their ideas evolve. The times change. Um, you know, now my view, and I imagine Ilya's view, I haven't talked to him about this, but I imagine his view would be, yes, that's why the framers put, um, in the constitution, a way to amend the constitution so that when the times change, the, the constitution can change with it. But my point is that no one's look. I'm even if I had my ideal of what a law school should look like, I wouldn't be trying to drive the progressives out because I think that their constitutional philosophy is wrong. Uh, I think you know the university, including the law school, is supposed to be a place that's sacrosanct in the sense of uh, it's the place for these debates to take place, and we're not talking about crazy ideas here. We're talking about mainstream schools of constitutional interpretation. And if one side, namely the progressives, because they're preponderant uh, in this institution, now thinks that they should exploit that preponderance so that they can drive out the people who think differently than they do, then these aren't universities anymore. I, you know, what they are is something that's, that's much more sinister. And they shouldn't be able to credential anybody because they're not fulfilling the mission that the university is for. So to, to drive Ilya out on a pretext, which they all know is totally dishonest mm-hmm. if they read what he wrote in a straightforward way and allow for the fact that he in goodwill 
apologize because he phrased something clumsily, if they nevertheless drive him out on a lie because they don't because he sees constitutional interpretation and the law differently from how they see it, then these are institutions that aren't worth having anymore. Yeah, I mean, I th- I think that's really the bottom line. It, it, this is how the the and I I have used the framing of class more than I ever have in my like intellectual life in the last few years, um, yeah. because it didn't seem to me to be the most relevant frame of looking at things even four or five years ago. Um, but but I'm unable. I find I'm unable to avoid framing things in that way. That it seems like actually the accurate way of talking about this is they aren't, their mission isn't that of a university anymore. Their, their mission is to credential the ruling class and the people who will then go on to, to inhabit all of these institutions, legal institutions that are supposed to be entrusted with, you know, upholding and enforcing the rule of law. They're going into those institutions and they're being shaped, um, you know, in law schools like Georgetown that in order to participate in any of that credentialing, you have to first swear allegiance to this quite narrow set of ideological opinions that are not shared by the vast majority of Americans. And indeed, in this case, the poll just came out that showed that 72% of Americans think that Biden should be looking at all um, all the possible candidates and not selecting pre-selecting somebody by race and sex. Um, as he has already done. So so Ilya's view is not only in the mainstream, it's the majority. And yet it's completely outside of those boundaries that what is frankly a ruling class um, has set and has made it so that nobody can make it into that class without being credentialed by an institution like Georgetown Law that no longer is able to accept anybody that doesn't fall into that narrow spectrum um, of ideological beliefs. And I, I think that that's really by far the most damaging thing. And, and it's, it's really been wonderful to have you on high noon, Andy McCarthy, um, to give us, uh, that perspective from being inside these institutions and then interpreting their actions to other people. Um, I, I, I really agree with you that we're in, we're in a very difficult bumpy time, um, for, for the history of our Republic. If the rule of law starts to be untrustworthy and and not trusted by the majority of Americans. Well, I couldn't put, I couldn't agree with that more and it was delightful to be able to to uh, rant about it for an hour. <laughs> thank you very much. Uh, and thank you to our listeners. High Noon with Inez Stepman is a production of the Independent Women's Forum. As always, you can send questions and comments to inez.stepman at iwf.org. Please help us out by hitting the subscribe button and leaving us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts, Acast, Google Play, YouTube, or iwf.org. Be brave. We'll see you next time on High Noon.